latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Henry Hilo, who is the author of a very interesting paper titled A Focus Group Study to Inform Design of Symptom Management Intervention for Adults with Atrial Fibrillation. Welcome, Henry. Well, thank you very much for having me. Very happy to be here and talk about our study. Um, I'm really excited to talk about your paper and more excited because you're the first medical student who's on our podcast. Uh, one of the missions of our journal is to kind of get the young people like yourself excited about this project, uh, this project and many, many uh, digital health projects. So we're excited to have you. Um, so uh, Henry, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? How did you get started, where you are in your career and um, why did you pick this question? Yes. So my name is Henry Hilo. I'm currently a third year medical student at the University of Michigan. Uh, I studied biomedical engineering in college, and I was actually introduced to the field of cardio cardiac electrophysiology and digital health, uh, working with Dr. Haldun Tarachi at the Cleveland Clinic in the year before starting medical school. And uh, we did a lot of exciting work in this space. And... Um, when I came to the University of Michigan, that's actually when I reached out directly to you because I was excited about the work I was doing and I wanted to be able to keep asking what I thought were very important questions about um, impacting the lives of our patients with the use of digital technology. Uh, we definitely know Cal and He's definitely one of the people pioneering this kind of work. So, um, you know, when 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 I heard that you work with Caldo and it was an automatic, um, you know, I I need to work with this guy. Uh, check mark. <laughs> so we're so I want to kind of dive into into the paper and kind of ask you a little bit about how you thought about designing this project and how you actually went about executing it. So uh, maybe you can tell me a little bit about you know what the genesis of the paper was and and you know how you went about actually executing this project. Of course. Um, so I, I think the best place to start with um, the motivations for our project that we're talking about today and actually comes from work that you started uh, a little bit earlier prior to me joining your team. And that was um, understanding a little bit more about outside of heart rhythm, what else may be contributing to the symptoms that patients with atrial fibrillation might be experiencing, symptoms like the shortness of breath or the racing heart. And recently, uh, we've been able to learn a little bit more that the, the lifestyle of the patient, as well as the emotional state of the patient, actually may be contributing greatly to those symptoms they're experiencing. So the first step of understanding, we may have different factors contributing to the symptoms, um, then led us to ask the question, okay, well, how do we understand what those lifestyle and emotional factors are for our patients. And I think this is a great opportunity to 
talk about um, our collaborator and colleague, Dr. Anna Kratz, and um, her career as a clinical psychologist and how she was able to ask the same question about different disease uh, states, chronic disease states like multiple sclerosis. And in doing so and in tapping to uh, Dr. Anna Kratz's, uh, her specialty and, and the knowledge that she's gained in her career, we, will, we were able to understand that the best way, the best first step in understanding uh, the needs of the patient is through qualitative research. And that's what brought us into this idea of having a focus group study where we bring in actual patients with atrial fibrillation and we ask them open-endedly to um, tell us about their experiences. Yeah, who would have known if you actually asked people about their disease that they would actually know a few things about it. <laughs> it was like a novel concept. I'm, I'm surprised, you know, as we embarked on this project, I was surprised how, you know, how often we actually don't do this, right? So why, why do you think it is that, you know, clinicians like myself don't, you know, we often like go, you know, I, when I'm, when I'm thinking about our intervention, I go ahead and design it and then I, you know, test its effectiveness in a population of patients. But we don't spend enough time actually going to the patients and asking them, you know, about the state of the disease and what are the things that are actually influencing their experience of disease. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a lot that goes into answering that question. Uh, maybe to highlight from my point of view as um, a physician in training and um, bringing in the viewpoints that we've talked about in the past. Um, I think one one big factor to all this is the overwhelming body of knowledge we have in terms of understanding the symptoms of atrial fibrillation specifically. Um, it's related to heart rhythm. So the studies and the, the, the background science that we learn about and talk about always is related to the rhythm. And um, I think that patients having the opportunity to talk about this with providers, um, it exists, but there are constraints. Uh, there's a uh, uh, you know, certain amounts of times that we have that we can spend with patients in the clinic, for example. Um, and we're also, even though we try to be as available as possible, uh, you know, through the portal, through email, even through phone calls, um, it can be difficult to answer all those questions in a timely manner and be able to personalize that approach for every patient. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's probably something we should do more often. And I hope to, as my, you know, as we go on and design these uh, really interesting digital interventions. I would, you know, hope to be doing more of these kind of studies as we go forward. So uh, let's dive in a little bit about into the study design. So tell me, you know, how did you execute this project? Sure. So um, big picture, the way that we set up uh, this study was we recruited patients who were actively ex um, experiencing these atrial fibrillation symptoms um, that I had mentioned before, like shortness of breath. Uh, fatigue, uh, the racing heart, the palpitations they may have. And um, in doing so, uh, what we wanted to do was actually originally bring everyone in in person to do these focus groups. But um, as just around that same time where the, uh, the COVID pandemic hit, and we we're actually able to translate that model into a digital model, and we we're able to have all these sessions virtually. And uh, with the leadership of Dr. Anna Kratz being able to run these sessions, uh, we had three total sessions where there was a mix of open-ended questions and closed-ended questions where we were able to dive into 
um, what was really impacting the day-to-day lives of patients with atrial fibrillation. And it was, it was really remarkable to understand uh, what topics or what concepts would come up and how frequently they'd come up. And uh, one term that we were introduced to through Dr. Kratz um, was saturation, meaning that over time, over the course of, of these focus groups, patients were saying the same things over and over again. And by the third session, they weren't saying anything that was new. And once we had all this really valuable data, uh, we transcribed it verbatim and we went through it. We combed through all that information multiple times. And what that allowed us to do was create a framework of terms and concepts that kept coming up over and over. And uh, we created what's called a code. And that code was uh, consisted of themes and sub-themes that uh, the patients were willing to talk about. Once we had that code with these themes and sub-themes, we're able to pull exact quotes from those patients that helped us understand this is exactly how um, this aspect of my life is impacting my atrial fibrillation and my symptoms. So for example, um, one lifestyle or management aspect that we hadn't really anticipated was hydration. Patients kept talking about hydration and how the more they were hydrated, they found the less their symptoms were active. And um, we were able to use all of this knowledge, collate it together and present it in our paper so that uh, not only providers, but hopefully even other patients with atrial fibrillation can uh, understand that this is a shared experience that um, a lot of these patients are going through. So you, you were, through careful interviewing, you were able to come up, at least discover themes that most patients generally attribute to their um, experience of atrial fibrillation. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, generally what those themes were? I know you mentioned hydration was a surprising one. Was, you know, was there anything else that uh, was surprising in your findings? Uh, there were, there were a few. So in terms of the major themes, the um, overarching themes that we identified, uh, one was symptoms. One was the social aspects of their atrial fibrillation, um, as well as atrial fibrillation treatments that they've uh, experienced, as well as health behaviors, um, the positive emotions of their experiences with their disease, as well as the education and the information gathering that the patients were able to perform. And within those sub-themes, uh, we were able to identify, identify emotions that uh, related to anxiety of the patients, you know, fatigue, stress, um, the medications they take, the procedures that they've had, as well as the physical activity, um, the limitations or um, the promotion of physical activity in their life. Uh, another big one that came up a lot that we were anticipating, but um, maybe not to the degree, was sleep. Um, everything from how uh, their sleep may be interrupted or they're tired in the middle of the day and, and need a, a little bit more uh, of a nap time than, than usual in the past. So all, all these themes and sub-themes sub together um, were really what drove home uh, for us the conclusions that we were able to make. This is super interesting. Um, you know, Clinically and intuitively, I know that you know, I can go ahead and do an ablation or give a drug to someone and um, surprise sometimes 
which maybe I shouldn't be after, you know, listening to you that patients come back and their, you know, experience of disease, their symptoms is maybe a little bit better, but not completely gone, even though I feel like I've done what I think, you know, what I've been trained to do. Um, I think the major learning from what you described here and in the paper is that, you know, their experience of disease is not only determined by what we see on the EKG, which is the rhythm in patients with atrial fibrillation, but there's a host of other factors that influence symptoms in patients with AF, like you described, you know, emotions, social connection, um, hydration, you know, level of activity, you know, fears and anxieties about life. And I'm, I'm imagining that, you know, majority of the patients maybe attribute more to those things than the actual physiology. So what, what were, you know, your, what were your conversations like when you were having these discussions with the patients? I think the best way uh, to answer that question is to share with you um, paraphrasing of some of the responses uh, of the patients. So for example, for a patient who talked about the anxiety related to atrial fibrillation, what that meant for them was, I'm scared when I go to sleep, uh, I'll wake up uh, and having a stroke. Or um, I love hanging out with my friends in the evening but it's hard for me to talk about my atrial fibrillation. So it causes me anxiety knowing that I may be around them and something might happen. They might not know what to do. Or um, a different patient who prior to his diagnosis of atrial fibrillation was um, an ultra marathon runner or would play hockey every day. And his social circle was dictated by his activities and atrial fibrillation and the, the limitations that were brought on with it uh, didn't allow him to participate in those activities like he used to. And as he described, he had to um, out old and in with a new with his friend group. And that really had a tremendous impact on his life, on his activity levels, on his social uh, interactions, social network. And, um, you know, and then you see uh, an extension of that uh, for patients who are thankful that they have a partner or a spouse or someone that they're close to that knows about their symptoms and that provides them with a bit of a peace of mind or uh, a gentleman who used to be able to mow his lawn. Uh, no problem. Uh, now he has to do part of it and take a break, drink some water and then come back to it because the fatigue sets in. Um, and then as we translate all that information, we think about, uh, well, how can we help and, and what can we do about it? And we learn that patients, uh, they really want information. They, they want to know what other people are experiencing. And even within our focus groups, you would hear patients who would say, I know there's only a few of us in here, but I didn't know other people had issues keeping track of how much water they drink. Or uh, it's nice to hear someone else who was afraid to go out in public and have an episode and how that's impacted their life. So taking those, quote, those quotes from the patients who participate in this study really allows you to put yourself in their shoes and understand what the day-to-day -day life is and more importantly, think about ways in which we can intervene. Really interesting. Really, really interesting. So tell, you know, you describe um, some fascinating findings through your conversations with patients, themes and sub-themes that you discover through conversation with patients that really influence experience of disease. So why is that important? Uh, how's that gonna change anything from our perspective? So from our perspective, 
one of the big takeaways for us was patients are already on their own seeking out information or trying to find ways to manage these stresses, these anxieties, these lifestyle behaviors that may or may not impact their symptoms. So for us, we can try to think about, well, how do we meet them halfway or even more than halfway and help them along on their self-management journey? And it's that, that idea of self-management, meaning patients can take ownership of these aspects that are affecting their life. And that's where, in our minds, a digital tool, a digital self-management tool would be a great resource for any of these patients. And um, building out that self-management tool is a combination of taking the information we learn from our patients and also taking the information we know, um, the tools that we know in the past might be helpful. So the big takeaway for us is, what does that tool look like and what do patients need? And at a high level, what we think that tool will look like is some types of type of digital interface that is accessible to all patients um, that has an overview of instructions of here's what we have to offer, as well as um, potentially for hydration, here's a way to track how much you're drinking. Or if you're a patient who needs uh, to track their sleep, here's a way to track your sleep. Or here are some healthy sleep habits that might um, encourage you on your AFib journey um, to uh, kind of alleviate some of those stressors with um, your sleep. Another big aspect of this is, and being able to work closely with our colleague, Dr. Kratz, as a clinical psychologist is, are there behavioral therapies? Are there um, other meditation or mindfulness activities that patients can do to help minimize uh, their stressors and how those stressors are impacting their atrial fibrillation? So um, our goal is to be able to create that application or that digital tool that patients can access. And uh, we like to use the, the phrase, uh, build your own adventure. You know, everyone may not need help with hydration or sleep, um, but if they do, they have access to it. And I think the final important thing um, for us is this has to be atrial fibrillation specific. Uh, this is specific to patients with atrial fibrillation because during our interviews, that's exactly what our participants said. We really want something that's directed towards us. We want something from people who we can trust, whether they be physicians or researchers in the field. And we want evidence as to why this may help us. So, uh, you know, looking, we're, we're really excited about what might be possible um, in delivering this tool to patients. Um, definitely, I think there's a lot of exciting um, interventions, a lot of exciting work ahead of you uh, as you embark in this field. So we have um, a lot of medical students, trainees who listen to this podcast and read the journal. And, you know, I'm sure they're excited to see, you know, someone so junior in their career is doing this kind of exciting work. Um, so could you, you know, maybe do you have any words of advice for people that are listening who are like, you know, at the same stage or earlier uh, in their career than you are? Uh, and then maybe, um, you know, you, you can tell me, you know, how you want to move forward with this work going forward. Sure. Um, so I, I think uh, in terms of electrophysiology, uh, one of the things that a lot of people will acknowledge is you don't really see much of it uh, as a junior trainee. And uh, if you think about the, the, the training track to even become electrophysiologist, it's 
residency, a fellowship, and then another fellowship. So um, I think the first piece of advice is it shouldn't feel as distant to you as it might seem. And it is very much accessible to you as a junior student. And um, in terms of getting involved, uh, it's, it's not always the easiest thing to do, but I think any student who's interested in the field or learning more about it or even getting involved in research, uh, it, it starts by just making phone calls or sending those emails, even if that's uncomfortable, and, um, and just showing you're enthusiastic about a, a subject and, and being able to learn and, and work through those challenges of, of um, doing something that's pretty foreign. Uh, and it's such an interesting field. I think that, you know, for me, coming with an engineering background, a lot of the science uh, was exciting to me. But also, you know, we've shown in this study that there's a, a huge component of quality of life and understanding what the patient's going through. So um, you can really, man, you could really turn this interest um, any way you'd like and really focus in, in a profound way. Um, and then the third thing I would say is uh, being able to find great mentors is really going to be able to allow you to have a sustainable journey when it comes to getting involved. And uh, that's where I'm very thankful to have people like you and Dr. Kratz and Dr. Tarachi who've helped guide me and, and, and show me the ropes, as they say. Uh, on a personal level, um, I think that being able to uh, participate in research in electrophysiology, it's, it's uh, very satisfying because it's a field where people are embracing technology. People are trying to understand, well, most of our patients have Apple Watches anyway, or most of our patients um, are really good with their phones. Um, even older patients, you may not expect to be. And uh, they want information. We want them to have information, but there are inherent challenges in that. So uh, being able to keep uncovering those challenges and working to meld the science with, um, like we have in this paper, uh, what the patient is going through, I think, uh, those are the big themes of, of what I'd like to keep, keep working on. And I was certainly, uh, you know, it's, it, it was a great pleasure to work with you on this project. And I know that we're going to see lots and lots of interesting uh, and important contributions to our field coming from you. So, uh, you know, for our audience, you know, you will, you better remember the name Henry Hilo because I think you'll hear a lot of it in the coming years. Um, well, thank you, Henry, for spending the time with me and all the best of luck to you in your career. Thank you for the kind words and allow me to participate. Take care.